Crossroads of Rockland History on WRCR and WRCR.com. I'm Claire Sheridan from the Historical Society of Rockland County. Today, I'll be speaking with Blavelt native Roger Peltzman. Since his appearance on our show back in 2014, Peltzman has continued to explore his family's harrowing story that took place in the wake of Hitler's rise to power, with his primary focus on his uncle, the piano prodigy Norbert Stern, who perished in Auschwitz at 21 years of age. Roger has a new one-man show entitled Dedication, and we'll learn all about it today. The Historical Society of Rockland County is a nonprofit educational institution and principal repository for documents and artifacts relating to Rockland County. Our headquarters are a four-acre site featuring a history museum and the 1832 Jacob Blavelt House located at 20 Zucker Road in New City. We're listed on the National Register of Historic Places and a designated New York State Path Through History site. Part of our broad and challenging mission is to share the history of Rockland with the public. And as a private nonprofit institution, not a county or state agency, the Historical Society of Rockland County depends on charitable contributions to fulfill its educational and preservation mission. We hope you will consider making a financial contribution or becoming a member of the Historical Society of Rockland County. You can learn more by visiting our website at rocklandhistory.org. We'd love to count our radio listeners as financial supporters and members of the Historical Society of Rockland County. We are once again open in accordance with the guidelines provided by the CDC and the New York State Health Department. So plan your visit. You can find out more by visiting our website at rocklandhistory.org. Today's show is pre-recorded, so we will not be taking any calls today. My guest today is Roger Peltzman, who grew up in Blavelt and who is returning to our program. Welcome back, Roger, and thank you for joining me on Crossroads of Rockland History. Thanks for inviting me. I was fortunate enough to have gotten a sneak preview of your one-man show, or I should say one-person show, since, uh, since that's what we say now. I must tell you that it is superb, and I cannot wait to talk to you about it. But first, if you can just take a moment and tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. I am normally a piano teacher at the Third Street Music School, which is the country's oldest music school. And I am also now a playwright and, funny enough, an actor, which I never thought I would be. And so I play concerts and teach, and hopefully I'm doing this the play version of the film that you've seen all over the country, hopefully in, in Europe. That's great. I, You know, the circumstances that inspired this project are truly harrowing. What happened to your mother, grandparents, and uncle remain astounding to me and um, to anyone who will eventually see this. Could you take a few moments now to explain what happened to them? Um, sure. The, the Stearns, which is my mother's maiden name, were Polish people who moved to Berlin in the 20s to make their fortune or at least try to make their fortune. And uh, they were assimilated Jews, very happy to be in Germany. And then with the rise of Hitler, they caught on pretty quickly what was going on and left immediately in 1933 to Belgium, which had a strong Polish-Jewish population. Uh, they weren't considered Belgian. They were considered uh, aliens, but they lived there pretty happily for several years until 
the Germans invaded Belgium. And for two years, they lived in occupation with having to register as Jews, etc. And then in 1942, the Germans were rounding up Jews, uh, telling them they were going to have work relocation in Germany, but actually they were going to send them to the death camps. And that's when my family decided to go into hiding. And for another two years, they were safe, but then someone must have denounced them. And one night, the Nazis' SS came for them. And my mother escaped through a bathroom window onto a snowy roof while they took away her parents and her brother. It's a long story how she survived, but she did survive. When you visited us in 2014, you had recently released a recording of Chopin pieces played by you in a concert hall that had once hosted your uncle, Norbert Stern. At that time, did you already know that you wanted to create a one-person show? No. (laughs) I had no idea. As a matter of fact, the show was going to be written by a friend who brought up the idea, and I was going to act it, and we're still best friends, but it didn't work out. And he kind of suggested that maybe I should write it myself. And... um, I thought, sure. And it only took four years to write and hundreds of drafts because I had no idea how difficult it is to write something that's good. It's easy to write something that's bad, but getting it good is another story. Absolutely. Well, so the facts of the loss surrounding your grandparents and your uncle and the escape of your mother are compelling enough, but I was moved by just how personal this performance was. Was that always the way you wanted it to be, or did that come out as you were writing it? That's a good question. No, it wasn't like that at all. Uh, When I first started, it was basically just telling the story, and it took a long time to morph into discovering that there was trauma. I didn't even think about it until I was writing it. So in a lot of ways, it was therapeutic writing the play, and um, it was a happy surprise that that I came to grips with stuff I had no idea that was inside. And um, through research and and writing it, and it became much more personal, which is, I think, a lot more affecting. You know, that's what people want to hear. You know, they they don't want to hear just the facts. They want you to show something about yourself. Sure, sure. And, And you really delve into how trauma impacts kids and how trauma can pass through generations and can be inherited. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, you know, I always felt growing up and and not that long ago that, you know, there was something wrong or missing or something I couldn't put my finger on. And through research, I, I, can't, I can't be sure, but I think a lot of it has to do with trauma passed on through either the genes or through non-scientific ways I don't know but you know in every I have two siblings but we we have we they're not in the play it was too difficult to work them in but mm-hmm. I don't know how they're affected but I know that I know that growing up I felt sort of guilty and neurotic or depressed and I believe it has to do with the loss of my mother and that it it's just inherently passed on some kind of emptiness and when I started the project that helped alleviate a lot of it by getting to know these people and then when I finally realized that 
you know, maybe that's the source of a lot of things that really, really helped as well. So the, the play is therapeutic in a million ways. Mostly I, I feel very comfortable about uh, living now. Whereas in the past, it was all, there was sort of a hole in there somewhere. That's fascinating. Thank you for sharing that. I'm also impressed by your dedication. And so it's no wonder that that's the title of this show. Just how your approach to your art, to your, to your music changed and how dedicated you actually became. What do you attribute that to? Well, in the play, I talk about how before I discovered classical music in my early 20s I was kind of a lazy person and kind of lost it like we were saying a minute ago but somehow when I discovered classical piano it really changed my personality forever I became a much more driven person I, I think it kind of saved my life and you know the the irony is I discovered it one credit shy of graduating with another major so but, you know, Binghamton back then was very cheap, so I just stayed three more years, you know. And my mother was very supportive, uh, which I'm I, I'm very thankful. I think that she probably, knowing, you know, seeing that I was beginning to study classical piano must have appealed to her because of the loss of her brother. But, you know, I was nowhere in his leaks, so she was also being very nice about it, you know. She wouldn't have known that I, I'd get his... Uh, accomplished as I gotten but that that took you know 40 years of of uh, catching up so you grew up in Blauvelt talk for a moment about some of your happy memories growing up there I think that my favorite memories have to do with uh the area where my father's pharmacy was which is right next to the Blauvelt library so I used to love visiting him in the store because uh he was kind of like the unofficial mayor of the town. So going in there was always a big event to see him kind of elevated behind the, the counter. And we had a ice cream and we had a big telephone booth. So I used to love to go in the telephone booth and play and get the, you know, the, the, the Schraff's uh, ice cream sandwich. And I used to love to go into the Blowbelt Library, which was always very quiet and very beautiful. But probably the happiest was when I would walk with my best friend Johnny from our houses to the Scoop, which was, uh, I guess a, you would call it a stationery store, but it sold baseball cards and the Monkees group uh, cards and Batman cards. And nothing gave me greater pleasure than, than to go in there as a little boy and Vic and Ernie, uh, the two guys who owned the place, one was tall, one was short, kind of like... Burton Ernie, it just occurred to me. <laughs> and they would say, Hi Raj, how you doing? You know, and I would walk around and get silly putty or get buttons. It was always a, it was always great to walk in there. And I think a lot of kids would who from my generation would agree that the scoop was just, you know, the destination. That's great. Excellent. Um, and you as you said, your father was beloved in the community. Um, but he did die unexpectedly and prematurely. And that did have a profound impact on you, didn't it? Oh, yeah. My whole life is defined by that, that whole moment. I mean, it just changed. You know, it's a terrible, terrible, crazy thing that happens at 12 years old when somebody like that's taken. And it, and it affects you. Mm -hmm. You'll, you know, you can never be the same. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's the biggest event of my, my, my life. 
and it was very unexpected. If you go to the Blowout Library, there's a plaque for him on the front lawn uh, underneath a tree that says to Nils Peltzman from his friends of Blowout. And uh, I like, he's, he, there's no grave, so I occasionally go over there to, to see it, and it sort of acts like a grave. Wow, I wasn't aware of that. That's, yeah. that's really nice. Yeah. Is it fair to say that your mother's profoundly serious, understandably serious suspicion of people who did not share her faith, that of Judaism, informed your childhood? And was that something that you tried to compartmentalize in some way as a child? Yeah, well, it's, uh, it, was, it was confusing because my mother was very nice to everyone and she did like people, uh, but she did always warn me that there was always a seed of anti-Semitism somewhere. And um, maybe it could be big, maybe it could be incredibly small, but it was always there. And growing up in Blauvelt, as opposed to, say, Orangeburg or Japan, where there's a Jewish population, I really felt like an outsider, which is something I don't think a child should really have to feel like, you know. So I was always mixed up, and uh, and I never knew which was the truth, whether she was right or wrong. And I have a feeling it might be somewhere in between, because mm-hmm. um, we all have our certain prejudices, you know, everybody. So um, it it did inform me, but when you get to be an adult, you can sort of say, well, that was her, and I don't know. I, don't, I doubt that, uh, you know, there's... Uh, there might be an element of truth to some of it, but I'm not going to worry about it anymore. But as a kid, it does it does uh, impact you. You know, I travel to Europe a lot, and I would meet people. I'm the only family member who's gone to Germany or Austria. None, wow. Nobody, nobody would. And I even even the first time I went to Germany, I was a little uh, scared. You know, my wife had a conference there, and I kind of envisioned it like uh, one of those Walt Disney uh, World War Two animated features with a with a with like a shadow going over Europe, you know. It was a little scary to me. And then I got to Berlin and I adored it, you know, and I loved the people and I loved everything about it. And but but anytime I would introduce uh, an Austrian or a German person of a you know younger generation to my mother, the accent would just drive her up the wall, you know, and she could not just say, oh, well, he had nothing to do with that or she had nothing to do with it. Impossible. Yeah. Well, it's understandable, really. You're listening to WRCR and Crossroads of Rockland History. I'm Claire Sheridan from the Historical Society of Rockland County, and I'm speaking with Blavelt native Roger Peltzman about the new developments surrounding his project entitled Dedication, which explores his family's history and its impact on the world of music and his own personal journey. So as you prepare, you know, began to prepare this this one-person show, how did you go about outlining it and pacing it? Because the way you move between your family's experience and your own throughout the show is brilliant. So how how did that come to be, the pacing of it and the, the way you put it all together? I wrote quite a few drafts, and I sent it to a lot of people, and I listened to a lot of helpful criticism, especially from my wife who's a book editor, and she had no problems telling me that it stank. And I'd like to say that I had a nice outline in the beginning, but I didn't, which made it really ridiculously difficult to kind of fix everything as I went along. And it was all trial and error. 
and even the 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 tone of my voice was different. I think it was more, it wasn't authentic enough, you know. And that mm. was the problem that I just kept, you know. So I would write it, write it, write. It, think I was done, and then I'd say, wait a minute, this doesn't sound right. And we live here in Upper Manhattan on the river in Castle Village, and so I went on the roof and uh, would take my laptop and a cigar. And I type four hours a day trying to and record myself and listen back and see if it sounded authentic. And then I would change what didn't. So I would say it was mostly just hard work and and, and a lot of helpful criticism from people. You know, you have to take it. Otherwise, you you know, then you're just being, you know, a narcissist. Right. Well, got to get it fixed. It definitely worked out the way you did it. At least that's my my view. Are you daunted at all by the prospect of? being just alone on the stage. I mean, yes, your piano is there and you've got the images projected behind you, but just to stand alone and, and move around the stage alone, is that daunting to you at all at this I'm point? I'm scared just listening to you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, it's daunting. But same thing with the piano. You know, it's uh, every recital is nerve-wracking to get to. You know, and it's almost like the first one. So what you do is you do about six or to ten run-throughs. And hopefully by the time you hit the stage and you're really nervous and you hit the first note, and then it's like, oh, okay, it's all right. So hopefully it'll be just like that with the acting. Like, oh, oh you know, and I hit the, if I don't forget the first word, then you just, you're off to the races. So you do play pieces and excerpts from pieces in the show on a beautiful piano that stays on stage with you. Is it comforting to sit down and play? Does, is that like a nice break for you to do that? or is your- It's actually kind of, uh, it's more difficult in my mind than, than saying the words because that's where you, re- you know, I'm more comfortable. I, I, I can play better than I can, I think that, you know, I'm more adept at playing than anything. So it's quite a challenge every time I sit down. Uh, but, um, but yeah, you're right. It, it is actually where I, it's more expressive than words. There's no question about that. So playing you really is a direct input into your body. There's nothing like music. So if I'm in a, in a good place and um, I feel like emoting, it, it is a, a release, yeah. And, you know, you talk in the, in the program and, and the truth is, is that your uncle Norbert Stern was a sensational performer, a sensational pianist. Do you, I know you feel sometimes that he, he's there with you and um, do you feel you are living up to his, his expectations or do you feel like you're living up to his, the quality that he had? He, he was probably in a class of a Rubenstein or Horowitz, so I'll never approach that, which is good to know. So I don't have to, you know, fool myself, but I, the part is that I practice every day. And I have to say that every day I make an improvement uh, because I do concentrate 100% focused on on what I'm doing, either technically or uh, aesthetically. And I think that when I hit something on the head, I do feel like he's like, okay, that's that's a higher level now. You're getting you're getting up there. And I still have a teacher who's in the play, uh, and he's uh, he's a Buddhist and he's very uh, spiritual. So he's been along with me on this journey and he really feels that there is some kind of communication between me and my uncle somehow. And, um, 
he's seen quite an improvement in 10 years that we've been working together. So he's, he's feeling like I am approaching, uh, you know, that kind of level. Even, you know, I just had a lesson a few days ago and the lessons went from him telling me how to do things to me playing. And we discussed how I played it in, in our philosophies. So it's become much different than it used to be. Interesting. Well, and didn't Pablo Casals say he could practice? He's 97. He still practices because you can always improve, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Same thing <laughs> with Yasha Heifetz. He did his scales every day, one hour, no matter what. And uh, yeah, yeah, there's always improvement. No question. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, I know that you have a performance coming up that's sold out. Um, but if listeners want to learn more about the project, when and where they can experience it, um, how can they do that? Well, right now, it's in a film version, um, which is funny. I did it because of COVID. We decided to to film it in case we couldn't present it anywhere. But, of course, we're, we think uh, we can perform it. I can perform it. So now what we're doing with it, it, it turned out so well. Uh, a lot of it has to do with uh, filmmaker Larry Fessenden, who's a he's a horror filmmaker, but he's fantastic at what he does, and he's a friend. And he, him, and his son uh, Jack really volunteered and helped make this film look beautiful. So we're I'm going to enter into forty film festivals, mostly Jewish film festivals, and then if you're in Edinburgh in August, I'll be doing twenty five performances there. Wow, 25 performances. In Fantastic. Days, yeah. Yeah. And uh and then So from that's there, technically the fringe the Edinburgh Fringe yeah, Festival, the fringe which is festival. a very famous, yep. yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. yep. Okay. Yeah, I have a nice uh theater called uh, Greenside, Emerald Theater at Greenside, and it's a done deal and it'll be just like what you saw uh on the film, but only there. And they've designed it that uh if I get four laptops and an assistant, I can do the show with that assistant anywhere in the world. Wow. It's, it, uh, that's how the, uh, the apparatus works. Now you just plug it all into this, the board mm -hmm. and they all start speaking to each other, sound lighting. That's amazing. And, uh, visual effects. And so, uh, that's what I'm doing. Um, I'm raising money for that, uh, for all information on anything about this, just go to rogerpeltzman.com. And there'll be information about the play, about the movie, if you feel like giving any money to this. Uh, the reason I'd like to do that is, you know, raise money to bring it all over the world is because uh, with all the Holocaust survivors dying uh, and from studies showing that uh, young people are uh, not as educated about the Holocaust as they used to be, I feel like this could be quite a educational experience because it focuses on specific people. And that always, when you make it more personal, uh, you're able to sort of understand a little better the, the vast numbers of those who were killed that if you read a big history, it's just overwhelming, you know. What your show talks so much about is just how it, it continues. So we have to address it we have to talk about it we have to teach it and you're absolutely right a personal story always uh is a the best vehicle to tell any larger history lesson i, I agree with that well you saw at the end of the film there's we we have uh, also a also documentary of laying of the stolpersteins 
-hmm. which for your audience are small brass uh, plates that fit on top of cobblestones, and they're put in front of homes where Jews were taken by the Nazis, and it has information about when they were born and what happened to them. So I went back uh, a few years ago with the the artist Gunther Demnig, and we laid four stones for my family, my grandparents and my uncle that says they were captured on just a few days ago, actually, in 1944. They were sent on a transport to Auschwitz two days ago in 1944. Uh, and then my mother that says liberated. And it's placed in front of the house that they were captured. And what happens is you see people bend down to look at them. And if you're standing and looking at them, you see this moment of, <gasps> and it enters their system. And that was the whole point of, of Demnick doing this, because he thought, you know, if you see a big memorial, you go, oh, there's the memorial. Mm -hmm. But if you bend down and you have to take in and read the name and look up at the house, it's it's going to affect you. And it does. I, I, that was the, my favorite part about it, is like standing back and watching passerbys look at it and think mm -hmm. about it. That was... Yeah. Remarkable. Absolutely. And even the woman who lived in the house, she was like, I did not know the story of yeah, my house, something? you know, so uh, very, very important. I, I it's uh, I mean, the whole film is beautiful. I'm so glad you mentioned the filmmaker because it is beautiful. And, you know, it sort of makes sense during COVID to have a show like this. It seems like it's the perfect show to do during COVID um, <laughs> because, you know, Aside from the audience being together, you're really there in as person. the vehicle for it. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you, Roger Peltzman. You've created a beautiful, compelling, and moving one-person show. And I certainly hope that many audiences can see it. I wish you the best. And thank you so much for sharing your thoughts about it here on Crossroads of Rockland Well, thanks for inviting me back. It's always a pleasure. Uh, please remember good. that everything we talked about, as well as a recording of this broadcast, will be available on our website, rocklandhistory.org. And I hope you will tune in to the next Crossroads of Rockland History right after the morning show uh, here on WRCR. That'll be the third Monday in March at 9.30. Please visit the Historical Society of Rockland County. Uh, our website is rocklandhistory.org. You can find out about all the upcoming events and programs. Please follow us on Facebook, where we have a growing group of friends and fans. And you can find us tweeting on Twitter, blogging on Tumblr, and posting on Instagram. And don't forget that many of our broadcasts are archived at rocklandhistory.org. And they are also available on all of your favorite podcast platforms. I'm Claire Sheridan, and thanks for listening to Crossroads of Rockland History. If you're in a podcast app already, you know how to subscribe to a podcast. So subscribe to this one. If you're listening on the Historical Society of Rockland County's website and want to get each new episode of Crossroads of Rockland History delivered to you, download Apple, Stitcher, or Spotify, then search for Crossroads of Rockland History and hit subscribe. We release every third Monday of the month. Thanks for listening. Thank you.